Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Software Cross Podcast. I'm your host, Juan, and today with us we have Daniel Fisher. Daniel is a user data expert for Anycom.io. He focuses his passion for data visualization on helping SREs understanding their complex systems quickly and clearly. Before he started at Anycomb, he spent 13 years at Microsoft Research studying ways to help people gain insights faster from big data analytics. Hi, Daniel, and thanks for your time to be with us. Hello, and thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here today. Thanks. Um, let's start with Heuristic. This one is from uh, your personal uh, repository. And Heuristic is quite short, but I think that will open up for uh, lots of debate. Heuristic is users are correct, but not accurate. Why did you decide to bring this heuristic? So a lot of my training and background is in human-computer interaction. And over in the user experience side of the world, we're very used to talking about users being, well, users will have lots of requests, but often they have a goal that is not necessarily the one that they're expressing well. So let me give you an easy example. Not long after I started at Honeycomb, I saw that we had we had a we have a very quick processing engine at Honeycomb. You put in a query and you get an answer almost immediately. But we kept getting requests from users to make the query faster and faster. And I went out and talked to some of the users who were asking for the fat for why the speed was important to them. And it turned out that one of the major user tasks was understanding, like I'm looking at a curve and it's got this spike in it. Why is that spike different? And the single best way that they knew to ask why that spike was different was to group by different things and see whether any of them disappeared. Maybe if I look at the data by AWS region, you know, one of the regions won't have that spike. Maybe if I look at it by which endpoint the users are looking at, I won't see that spike. And what we found, and once I understood that what they were looking for was to iterate quickly, it turns out the important part wasn't making the engine fast. It was giving them the ability to see as many dimensions as possible. And so we developed this technology that we call Bubble Up, which essentially manages to do a comparison across many dimensions at once. The Bubble Up query is actually much slower than any single query would be. But it's much, much faster than any three or four would be, much less than the 50 or 60. So suddenly users were able to look across 100 dimensions at once. And all those requests for can you make your engine faster kind of went away. So when I say users are correct but not accurate, they have a real user need. And understanding what their goal is really important. But sometimes the request that they explicitly make is describing what they see as the next step down the path, as opposed to the next thing that actually helps them accomplish their goal. Very interesting story, um, bringing these uh, from a recent experience. I imagine that yeah, you have more uh, and almost sounds like uh, the, the famous story from Henry Ford. If he asks users what they want, they want faster horses. But he'd build a car, right? That open up mm. an old industry that we have to precisely. Uh, oh yes, I'm I'm far from the first person to discover this. It's kind of standard product manager dogma that if you're doing your job right, you're going to sit down and look at the requests and try and build a mental model of what the users want to be 
doing and not necessarily trying to specifically answer their individual feature requests. Which is a very interesting topic because I love mental models and how we form our mental models. Mm. So you have you have an academic background, uh, although in a, a big company, but you did research yeah. and today you are in a, a company that is, is scaling. So yeah. you are in between these worlds. So what are your go-to techniques to figure out the mental model of the users, to figure out their goal that is behind that request? Mm, that's a great question. I'll step back first and say, yeah, I actually got a PhD and went to Microsoft Research, which is very much a university academic department hidden inside a very large corporation. And I had a wonderful time there in an organization whose goal was largely to publish papers and perhaps to influence the product teams. Coming over to Honeycomb was this interesting leap of like very much having my hands inside the code and, you know, building things with my colleagues very quickly, uh, but still using the same sorts of techniques that I used. Uh, you asked about my go-to techniques, and that's interesting because there's a lot of different approaches that I take. Um, one of the things that I really love about my background is that it taught me a lot of very eclectic techniques, and I like being a mixed method discovery person. So, for example, I very strongly believe that you need to be able to look at data and understand what users are doing. And so I like nothing more than to dive into a database and go to a query and go find out that 250 people have clicked this button in the last six hours, as opposed to before you put out the feature change when fewer people had clicked it, or to go see what columns people are putting into their data and try and imagine what their mental model is. But then I also like to turn those into individual examples and say, great, I've seen this person, I have a hypothesis about what their actions are, right? I've just seen in the database that they clicked this button 200 times. Now I want to like actually pull them in for an interview and I'll go back and forth between like getting a list of people who seem to have done something interesting in the data and then pulling in a human in an interview and saying, I'd like to hear about your process. Tell me how you think about things. And sometimes I, you know, the hypotheses that I built were right. Other times they're completely off or I'll go in the other direction. I'll have a issue from a, or a question from a user and I'll go to the data and go say, great, let's go watch that user's click through and go see the things that they did and then go turn around and go say, can I write a query in my database that allows me to find 50 other users who acted the same way? Is this a one-time quirk or is this a common issue? So I definitely see that uh, how you mix up, right? And uh, you mm -hmm. used to build your hypotheses and uh, bring them then to the product, right? To, to one of many teams that right. probably Anycom have, has to, to develop these. And you keep talking about humans, right? And you also mm -hmm. are a specialist in human-computer interaction. So now a very, very personal question. So to navigate and, and, and to do product management and product research as you do, how do you balance your own bias when you are building the hypotheses and discovering uh, with users? That's a great question. It's, it's hard because, you know, it's really easy, I think, as you're suggesting. <laughs> Do you sort of have your own hypothesis about what users want and 
you try and look really hard at the data and convince yourself that it's probably right. The best technique that I've found for balancing my own bias is to delight in being wrong. I absolutely love when I have a hypothesis and it turns out that I was just wrong about it. It means that there's a whole mystery out there that I haven't solved, or there's a piece of user mental model that I haven't gotten my head around. And while I certainly like being right, when I can manage to discover that I'm being wrong, I, you know, I often learn all sorts of cool new things about the world. So you are a curious people, curious person by uh, default, I can see. Yeah, I think curiosity is probably a big part of it too. It's, yeah, it's much less important for me to be right than for me to like learn a cool new thing. Very, very interesting. So uh, to tap in your brain and way of thinking. Another thing that you are uh, very related in your field is data analytics, right? Mm, yeah. Uh, uh, it pops up in, uh, in oh, this totally. conversation that we are having data. Where do you see the data analytics space going? Mm. Where do I see the space going? So I think as came up, I really enjoy this switch between qualitative and quantitative. And I think there's actually a, there's a direct analog. Honeycombs as a tool tries to support SREs and other people who are trying to understand what their systems are doing and how. I was talking about that qualitative experience of talking with people and then like seeing whether I can find numbers that back up the conversations I've had or that help articulate the conversation I've had. I actually see precisely the same thing happening with our customers as they're doing their own analyses. Honeycomb fundamentally is a tool for people who are trying to solve digital mysteries. They've got a system that's running slow or that they don't understand what the interactions between parts are. And so they're trying to build a model in their heads of like what their system is doing, what happens when a request gets processed and what server and what microservices it bounced through and what network connections are taking long or running quickly. And so they're also doing something very similar to what I was talking about with that mixed methods. They'll come into us and go stare at, you know, a trace or go run a quantitative analysis. And then they'll spin around and go dig around in their config files and go look at their, you know, service mesh to try to understand if I was seeing these numbers over there, what was the thing in the code that caused that number to emerge? What's the pathway that the code was taking through? And in some ways, that is that same movement from micro examination of a single request out to like that broader picture of how does this work as a trend and back and forth between those. And when you ask where I see analytics is going in the future, I think it's very much, it's, we have a, we are now living in a world where we are increasingly demanding of understanding where our data is coming from and what story we're trying to tell with it. Um, Honeycomb, as well as all our many competitors, are all trying to give you a hand on your system data. Simultaneously, we have analytics packages out there that are trying to find other ways of scooping up data from as many different sources and putting them into places so that you can ask questions. It shouldn't be a mystery to you what your users are doing on your system. It shouldn't be a mystery to you 
how your system is working and finding ways to be able to look at those, understand them and ask reasonable questions is, you know, I think what the future looks like. And there's this interesting tension then of like, is it better to be building out dashboards, essentially standing queries that have that you look at over and over and over and get to know how your system can look or whether it's better to go probe into your system? Um, I'll say that the answer in my mind is, of course, both. You want to both be building these boards that you can look at and say, ah, yes, my world, my users, my system looks like I usually expect it to. Or conversely, you also sometimes want to be able to say, that's an interesting spike. That's an interesting question. Let's go drill down on it and go see what that little piece of the world looks like. You need both. And I'm delighted to see that like the world is increasingly experimenting with different models of interaction, of exploration, of moving quickly through your data. Very interesting uh, analysis and uh, prediction that uh, you gave. Uh, thanks uh, for that. Now, you trigger me when you were doing your forecasting and uh, how potentially as an industry we can go. And you said um, that your customers also behave uh, like you behave, right? So do this mixed me method in examination. My question mm -hmm. is, do you think that for our industry and software industry, right? So and go large. Do mm. we instill enough for people to use mixed method or uh, we are still in some points in our industry that just what we did in the past is good enough and we keep with the same methods? I think we're seeing... Hmm. I don't think we usually phrase it as this. But when I see people talking about like what makes for a high performing team, I often read those as saying that they can handle those sorts of mixed methods. I mean, maybe I should switch the question back to you and say, when you hear about, you know, high performing teams, the people who are, you know, doing blameless retros and, you know, able to uh, collaborate closely, what sort of tools do you see people as wanting to talk about? And how do you, how do you understand them as understanding their progress? It's a it's a very very good one. Uh, I also have a similar mental model, right? So uh, I I think that the team is the smallest element in a company, although people are very important. But the team should be uh, able to carry the the tasks in an autonomous way. And as part of that, we need to have different skills and different ways to analyze problems to try to see what is the the best way. Because I saw in first hand when we have um, a, what I call a cloning pattern, I just clone people like me. I just mm -hmm. hire people like me. That is when teams and companies die because then it's mm -hmm. just uh, the single mindset. Um, it's the first time that uh, I always thought about methods as um, a second layer. And I really mm -hmm. like your uh, spin to bring this as a first class citizen just broke my mental model. Yeah. <laughs> I'm delighted to hear it. I do think that like when I look at what makes successful teams that I see, there is this constant process of introspection and of trying to understand and of looking back at what happened. Um, when I look at 
you know, the honeycomb ops team building their reports of what went wrong, of what went wrong in their incident reports, for example. And we've published a couple on our blog. You'll see this interesting alternation between here's where the people were doing and here's what their mental models were. And here's what the code was doing. And here's what the data shows that these things were doing. And that, and I think that all three parts of that cycle are really important. And that become, you know, and it may not, they may not have gone through the same explicit training about that, but it's very much the same sort of story of like trying to link the quantitative model with the qualitative, what's the actual behavior look like? Definitely. Definitely. I, um, I agree with you. I was just trying to mm -hmm. see how do you perceive the world, right? And uh, how do yeah. you see uh, the things going? Because unfortunately, I also see some companies keeping insisting on the past or not embracing something new that can help them, right? Bouncing between these methods. Yeah. I definitely agree. That's a fundamental challenge. Growth is hard and change is hard. Um, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't have anything more profound to say than that. <laughs> But maybe you have an example, right? When in your career did you realize uh, about change? Change is key and embracing new methods is key. Or was already a thing that you carry with you as a person? Mm. Ah, I see. Um, I'm sorry, taking me just a moment to uh, think of a good story that uh, links up here. Well... I mean, I can certainly say that Honeycomb has been going through a substantial period of growth over the uh, last two years. Over the course of the pandemic, we went from a 30-something person company to a 100-something person company. Um, and over that time, uh, you know, we also greatly grew our footprint. And so there's been a lot of thinking about how we change both our front end, how we change our back end, and how we do our work internally. Um, and that certainly caused me some changes. When I showed up uh, at a, you know, 20-something person startup, there wasn't really a design team. There wasn't really a product team. Everything was kind of, you know, cowboyish, identify a problem, build a solution, and move on to the next thing. And while that was delightful, it, you know, It was also fairly chaotic. And for every project that we were able to like spin off something amazing and miraculous, we were also, you know, we also had another project where we did something by the seat of our pants because we just didn't have time and resources to properly analyze it and discovered that like we built something that we didn't need. Um, it's really, all of us have been grappling with how you now work in this more regimented environment where you have plans and decisions and discussions. And for me, certainly like I've been working a lot on, you know, one of my biggest changes has been learning how to uh, take, well, as an academic, I was often an individual contributor who was building an entire research agenda out from scratch. I didn't have to justify the different pieces or write them out. And now there's very much a, this is a collaborative project where a whole team is going to be both, you know, deciding what to do and how to do it. And so like working out 
how do you present evidence internally and externally? How do you work with the different stakeholders who are interested in your project? Is you know is definitely a form of uh, growth and development. Thanks for sharing. Also, uh, uh, because you pretty much jump between two different worlds, uh, mm -hmm. which are uh, different. Uh, I also start my career on uh, academia, but um, for a shorter mm -hmm. period, not as long uh, as you. So uh, totally yeah. different worlds. Yeah. But I think that also the richness comes from there, right? And, and, and what people can offer with... Uh, a different lens through the world. Uh, and that leads to a data question that goes on my head. Mm. How can we handle a situation where two people, two different persons, are looking to the same data and come to different conclusions? Mm. I already had situations like that, and I will like uh, to have your take on these? <laughs> that is a lovely question. A number of years ago, a colleague of mine at Microsoft and I went out and gave ourselves a challenge of putting together a presentation of opposite interpretations of the same data. And we discovered very quickly that it was uh, disturbingly easy to do so. We looked at, for example, unemployment rates in the United States and we discovered that uh, you know the Obama campaign, uh, the Obama re-election campaign, had been like promoting what got referred to as the bikini graph because it showed like the unemployment rate dropping and then the unemployment rate, or the unemployment rate rising and then the unemployment rate dropping, uh, and they had flipped the y-axis so that it was a downwards-facing triangle. So it showed you know hey look it's going up under the Obama administration, but if you flip that around instead of showing the first derivative, you just show the sheer number of of jobs you just watch the number of jobs dropping and maybe it's dropping a little bit slower towards the end and that's a much less optimistic view it's really easy to tell multiple different stories with a data set uh, choosing a slightly different time axis can give you a different base can give you a different baseline I tend to fundamentally believe that many data sets are going to feel fairly ambiguous and will have multi and will be open to multiple interpretations. And to work around that, what I encourage people to what I encourage my teammates at least to do is to at least write down a couple of pre-interpretations before they start staring at their data. That is, I'm hoping to see the curve look something like this. If it swoops up and to the right, then I'm going to know that we're seeing growth. And if it swoops down into the right, then we're going to see losses. And if it stays flattish, then we're going to, right. And so if they've done some of that interpretation work before they draw the graph, then that can help reduce some of their bias. Uh, Professor Jessica Holman, uh, now I believe at Northwestern, has done some lovely work on re uh, researching where she actually asks people to pre-sketch their hypotheses about how the world looks uh, before they before she shows them the graph. And that's sort of, and just getting that like, pinning down helps people go, aha, I thought so, and agreeing with whatever they see as their uh, final decision. Because there will be multiple interpretations and there will be uh, multiple perspectives. Sometimes, however, it's too late. You've already come up with those multiple decisions or you uh, those multiple interpretations of the same data. 
And then what I find most useful is to break down where you're getting that from and what the things actually mean. That is to say, fine, the numbers haven't risen. Does that mean that the success that the experiment was a success because nothing went wrong or was the experiment a failure because nothing grew? Well, let's go back and look at what we pro hoped the project would do. Let's go back and see if we can break down those numbers that didn't change and see whether the mix of users changed so that we can describe in more resolution and higher detail what is different. Very interesting experiences once again and, and stories that you bring uh, to the table because a few years back so i have an interesting on data right i work as consultants uh, consultant so um <laughs> i saw my enough about the uh, people playing with numbers but a few years back i wrote i read a book i think from mm. a brazilian mathematician that was how to lie with numbers and was exactly, mm. especially when we draw uh, charts, how to play with time scales or 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 to 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 give the impression that you have a huge growth, so change the scales and these type of things. Um, Absolutely. And I find the so it was very interesting, right? Written in the sixties, mm -hmm. and then then I find that how we continue to have our own uh, bias, uh, confirmation bias, to believe on something, right? Although the, the data might not look like that or someone is uh, uh, plotting the data in a way to believe me, uh, to confirm my bias or to confirm my opinion. Right. And how could we, uh, uh, we have some examples, right? How can we decompose that? Going, mm -hmm. looking back, okay, the line is flat. Can we break down our users? Maybe uh, our user base change and then the, the right. aggregate all of those numbers, give a flat line. Are good examples or good tips to, to question what is happening and to, to follow up? Fundamentally, I think that... Fundamentally, I think that the challenge here is that we often try to use graphs as evidence in a way that they aren't necessarily. If I'm trying to have an argument with you and we're each like bringing our favorite graph, it's really easy for one of us to be lying either intentionally or accidentally. Um, my colleague, uh, Michael Carell at Tableau has written some lovely papers on, I believe what he calls evil graphs. And what he shows like is that very small tweaks to things like histogram bucket sizes can entirely show or hide spikes in your data, can show or hide, you know, bimodal behaviors, can make things look much worse or much better than you want. And that's, and these are, these feel fundamental to the field. I don't think we can get away from the fact that fundamentally, when you're putting together a presentation, you are fundamentally hiding some information. In the end, I think what you need is to be collaborating and working with people who are all dedicated to the broader project of finding out the truth and not to their being right. So that when I show one graph and you show a different one, it doesn't become a battle over who picked the better x-axis, but instead a broader question of like, what's the thing we're really trying to find out? And can we reanalyze this data in another way to learn something new? 
Um, for example, I really enjoy when we're doing any sort of analysis technique. If I can find any parameters in there, I tend to do, I like to do robustness tests, right? If you're showing me the number of users who have carried out more than 25 queries, let's change that to 20. Let's change that to 30. If the number doesn't change much, then that's good. 25 is a fairly arbitrary constant, and it doesn't matter a whole lot what you really picked. If when you change from 25 queries to 26 queries, suddenly that brings in a mega customer who like has thrown in a billion dollars and now like, you know, and now the argument completely changes, then that number 25 turns out to have been a magic number. And there's something very strange about the behavior that happens right there. So I'd like to play with constant, when I'm doing some sort of query, like when we're breaking groups into tiers, I like to play with the constants a little bit and go see how much they change things. I like to wiggle around the scale of the x-axis. What if we'd done this analysis a month ago? What if we'd done two months ago? Again, because if the analysis would have been completely different if we'd done it a month ago, maybe we're not measuring the thing that we think we're measuring about you know, science and reality. We're measuring what the most recent bits are. But again, fundamentally, this is about finding and working with people who uh, all want to find the truth and want to come to a shared consensus. Clearly the most important part. I do believe so, right? So uh, I'm an evangelist about uh, collaborative work, right? I do believe that, as I said, software is delivered by teams. So um, I don't believe that at least we yeah. are not uh, lonely wolves in a team, so we need to work together and teams need to work in teams in more complex systems. But also you were talking about another thing, uh, very interesting when you were uh, telling that you like to go one month back to run the same analysis and two months back to see mm -hmm. if there are things there. Because yeah. in the end we work and we create complex systems. And if we pick up the, the Knevin theory with complex systems, every time that we look to the problem or talk with the problem, the problem changes itself. Mm. And that is also the world where we are jumping into if we create these visualizations about some of the data, specifically uh, when you have lots of data, and then we talk with users and people that create and generate that data that might influence that behavior, their behavior. Is that correct? Just to clarify, you're asking about whether observing the data will fundamentally change it? Uh, or, or when jumping from observing the data, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And then going to talk with users about the data itself or, or, or the, the, some theory about the data, if mm -hmm. that will not make the users change their behavior. Right? The oh, we're absolutely. talking about mental models. Oh, I see what you mean. Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting challenges that's come out of a that all that often comes out of user interviews is, you know, at some point you're asking user, well, how would you go about, I don't know, breaking this variable down? And they say, oh, wait, you can break it down. Oh, that's what that button's for. Oh, wait, holy crap. And suddenly you've changed from a uh, user study session into a user education session. Similarly, there's certainly a challenge, you know, Fundamentally, a lot of what I'm doing is in the service of building better product. And so I do this query. I learn something about how users are interacting with their product. We change the product. 
a month later, the query will be different because the product shifted around or the trainings that we give shift around or the right or other pieces. So, yes, there is this constant like the process of observing it does change it. And that's certainly something to uh, be watching out for. I've got a colleague who started playing with as she's building out her graphs. She likes to put on like sort of a dotted line of here's the day that I taught this seminar. Here's the day that we, you know, push this release so that at least you can try and see like whether some piece was shaped by those behaviors. Um, actually, just today, she was uh, talking to me about the idea of like being able to compare the baseline of one team that didn't get the seminar to another team that did so she can see how effective the seminar was. I'm not sure that that answers your question. Um, I was more taught when I talked about like comparing to previous months, I guess I meant less like running the analysis every month, which very definitely has that shaping and more just thinking about parameter robustness. That is, if I believe that I'm doing a measure of how many active users we have on our site, if I ran this a month ago and counted the number of active users a month ago, does that number look largely the same? Um, if it shows difference, is that a difference because there's been user growth or does it show difference because, um, you know, I don't know, Easter Sunday came and everybody wanted to go visit our website on Easter Sunday for some reason. That is, what's the trying to disaggregate uh, the different causes of how numbers change and how user behavior changes. Um, so you answered my question. You gave your experience and yet another uh, example from the real world. And also thanks for your uh, clarification, how you will uh, apply that, or the example of comparing month to month. Yeah. Have, we are running towards the end of the interview, so yeah. uh, I have uh, a couple of questions. And one is to, to help the people that want to enter into the data space. Mm. What do you advise for people to go into the data space? Because in my perception also, the data space is big. It is big. And my one piece, my best piece of advice there really is to have data and to love it. Um, I know that sounds that sounds silly, but when I my experience has been working with lots of different people and lots of different teams, people who come in saying, "I wish to learn about this data thing," often find themselves stuck because they can only find themselves doing exercises. When I find people who have some sort of data set that they're passionate about, whether it's they love following a particular baseball team and so they've been collecting statistics from that baseball team's records, or they particularly care about, you know, how many users are visiting the website or whatever else, that gives them a hook. It makes the exercise it, when they're studying or asking questions or learning more about tools. And God only knows there's hundreds of online sites right now that will provide you anything from like Khan Academy courses and data science to introductions to SQL, introductions to Tableau, bunches of other things. Um, if you have something that you care about that's motivating you to run through data, you'll be able to ask more interesting questions and you'll start slicing it in more interesting ways than if you're just trying to follow, uh, than if you're just trying to, you know, follow through a tutorial. 
Rex, uh, thanks for your uh, advice. Also, uh, I think that uh, people can really listen to your pas passion for data. I think that that is really visible. Um, the last question, um, what are the resources mm -hmm. that you recommend mm -hmm. to the audience? Uh, I have uh, two, I came in with uh, two suggestions here. One of them is, uh, there is a uh, data visualization expert named Stephen Few. He has put together a number of wonderful books on dashboards and on data visualization. But I'm going to recommend his book, Signal, which is very much about trying to look at different data sets that may or may not, that, and try to understand sort of where the robust parts of them come from. So he looks at like how to take noisy data sets and try and figure out what the most interesting nugget from them is and figure out whether your data is really saying something or not. I found it very valuable and I think other people will too. My other recommendation is my own book. Um, it's called Making Data Visual from O'Reilly Press. I wrote that with uh, my colleague, Mariah Meyer, who is then a professor at University of Utah. Mariah and I had both had the interesting experience where users would come to us with a pile of data and say, go look at this data and show me whether there's, you know, and show me what's interesting in it. And I'd always turn to them and say, well, what do you think is interesting? I'd say, oh, there's lots that's great in here. You can find it. And I'd say, great. I can give you a histogram of the number of letters of the alphabet in the column. And they'd say, how come? And I said, well, he's told me there's all sorts of interesting things. They'd say, but that's not, but that's not the part I care about. The part I care about is sales. And I'd say, oh, tell me more. And they'd say, well, because I've got, you see, sales by different cities. And I think each city is going to buy a different selection of parts. And what I'm really interested in is like, which cities are going to buy which parts by season? And I was like, ah, now you've told me several dimensions that you care about. You've given me... Um, you know, the measure that you care about, which is sales, you've given me some outcomes that we care about. Now we can work forward. What making data visual is fundamentally about is how to start with that very ambiguous statement of like, I'm curious about how sales are different over time and turning that into crisper questions that actually can be answered with the data visualization it tries to break down the process into a couple of steps and help users walk through it. I'm pretty happy with uh, sort of taking the data analyst in a bottle and, you know, being able to spray it onto a lot of different problems. Thanks for sharing uh, these resources. I, I hope that uh, the audience um, pick those uh, and then also engage in conversations uh, with you and your colleague, because I, I love this story. Uh, I can uh, tell you also mm -hmm. told me this story offline. I find this, uh, this story amazing. Uh, and I think that uh, we just circle back to the beginning of, of the episode, how to get those answers and how to get those goals uh, from the users. You just show up, you just show uh, another way by bringing what you find that is interest. And then the, the, the person tells you that they have different interests. I think you're totally right. This is, again, an example of the users having a, of users being 
correct in their goals. They believe that there's something interesting in this data they wish to pick out, but we're not necessarily able to be very precise about it. And this is a methodology for helping them do so. I do like the way that that's circled around. Thank you. And and thanks for your time and to share your uh, knowledge with us. And uh, with this, we get to the end of the episode. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for the great questions. I really enjoyed this conversation. All right. Thanks. And follow us on Twitter at Scrass Podcast. Visit our webpage, softwarecraftspodcast.com. Visit our page on LinkedIn. To see you next week. Thank you.